Life Management Science Labs would like to acknowledge that we live and produce this podcast on the traditional lands of the Wurundjeri people. We'd also like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands of our listeners and our international colleagues. We'd like to pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging. Hey everyone and welcome to All Together, the Family Science Insights Podcast, produced by LMSL, the Life Management Science Labs. We are champions of life management science, providing structured insights informed by science and inspired by practice on key aspects of conscious living. Each week we bring you scientific and practical insights on each element, with the expert knowledge of professionals in the field. I'm your host, Dina Sargent. Let's get started. Hey guys, and welcome back to another episode. Now, every family has different ways of communicating. That particular pattern impacts a lot of how we speak to each other and also how we solve a lot of problems. Today's episode is looking into how that pattern impacts how we provide family care, as well as looking into the social support that we have for caregivers. To help me in this conversation is Dr. Jennifer Bevan, a professor in communications. She's also written scholarly articles in a few areas, one being the social connections within caregiving. So thank you so much for joining me to talk about this, Jennifer. Thank you for having me. Now, as a professional on today's show, what is your role in helping families get a deeper understanding into their their family dynamic within regards to caregiving? So in essence, I'm a researcher. So as a professor, I'm trying to get a sense of the patterns that people um, experience when they are caregivers. So it's not a direct interaction with caregiving and caregivers, unfortunately, but I'm trying to provide sort of like the basic back background input, you know, framework for really understanding how caregivers can have improved communication and better like health outcomes, mental well-being, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So you're providing a lot of what... Um psychologists would use, for example, into that research beyond that? Yes, I'm an interpersonal communication researcher, which is very similar to psychology. But instead of thinking about kind of what's going on in the mind, I'm thinking about what's coming out um, in terms of how you verbally communicate and non-verbally communicate. But yes, um, very close to psychology in terms of what kind of academic discipline it is. Okay. Now, to clarify on caregiving before we get started, we usually hear the term when it's being used for caring for the elderly. And I've spoken about this before is the fact that I always have seen it or heard it socially in terms of being caring for elderly. But I do want to ask if we're going to be discussing the other elements that are also needed to be considered for the topic. Um, Caregiving can be sort of framed in lots of different ways, certainly looking at just elder adults is definitely one way to to you know approach it. The way I view it is I view anyone who is providing an intensive amount of support, assistance, effort to any close family member, even friend. And so that could include a parent who's taking care of a medically complex child, which often adds about 10 hours a week to their parenting. So it goes beyond just parenting. It becomes, you know, additional appointments, additional prescriptions, additional work with insurance and so forth. So it really can range. Um, There's also children who provide care for their parents. And so you can think about it the opposite way. And oftentimes these are minors who are dealing with a parent who might have had cancer or COVID or something like that. So it really can range from all sorts of different situations as long as it's informal. So it's not through the formal systems 
not through healthcare providers, not through nursing homes or hospitals. Mm-hmm. Well, that is such a great introduction to today's topic. But before we discuss it further, I love to get to know some of your recommendations as well as some of your passions by playing our channel's favorite and most basic game, um, a little icebreaker. So just when I have these questions, just sort of the come the first thing that sort of comes to your mind. Um, the first one is, what's the most recent book that you've read? Actually, I finished a book by Curtis Sittenfeld last night. It's a fiction book called Romantic Comedy. Um, it's kind of funny because I don't read a lot of fiction because then I get so I read at night before I go to bed and it's so intense for me and I get really involved and invested in it that I can't go to sleep. Um, yet it's so joyful for me. It makes me so happy. And this was just a really fun book to read. Um, kind of brings in the entertainment industry and romance. And I don't know, that was that was just a, like you said, the last book. And I was like, oh, wow, the last book I read is actually totally different from most of the other books. But I really, really enjoyed it. So. Highly recommend Romantic Comedy by Curtis Sittenfeld. Okay. No, I definitely agree with you. I cannot read fiction books before going to bed because I get too hooked on it. And I think I've stayed up till 6 a.m. one time. Oh, my gosh. Just reading it and didn't realize that the sun was coming up. And I'm like, oh, okay, that's a bit too much. <laughs> <laughs> that's the mark of a good book, right? <laughs> that's very true. No, I am. I'm glad that I did. I would never do it again, though. But... I'm glad that I did it. (laughs) (laughs) Now, the next question is, what's the movie that you would recommend to our viewers today? I am such a dork that I'm a big fan of the Star Wars movies. Um, I don't really have a recent movie that I've seen, but I could always recommend that's just such a great series. There's so many great stories in there. Um, Lots of strong female characters. Honestly, Princess Leia uh, is one of my heroes from when I was a kid. And just she provided me with a framework that this is a different kind of princess. It doesn't have to be somebody in a frilly dress. It can be somebody who can, you know, go out with a, you know, weapon and take care of things herself and all that stuff. So I've just been a really big Star Wars fan. Every time it comes on TV, I, you know, turn it on. Actually been to Comic-Con before in San Diego. Um, It's just a really fun. I have some R2-D2 things behind me. Um, So it's just a really fun series of movies that anyone can watch and enjoy. No, I agree. I haven't really seen the new, the new recent, I think Kylo Ren sort of films. I haven't seen those ones, but I have seen a, a lot of my childhood with Star Wars because my whole family love it. It's a great family sort of just rounder, all rounder as well. Yeah, everyone can enjoy some aspect of it for sure. That's why I love it. Yeah, perfect. <laughs> now, could you name a podcast that really stands out to you? Um, so I am a big fan of an American television show called Parks and Recreation. And it is about it's a it's a situation situation comedy about a group of sort of fun people who work in a state or city parks and recreation department in, in the United States in Indiana. Um, there's a podcast for that. And, and there's a lot of, you know, po- accompanying podcasts that you know, rewatch the shows, talk about them and so forth. So I guess I would say my favorite one is called Parks and Recollection, where they basically have people from who were on the show, guests, writers, producers come in and talk about each episode. And it's just been a really fun way to sort of rewatch the show. It's been off the air for a while, but to just rewatch the show and kind of get a new perspective about it. So when I when I listen to podcasts, it's mostly just for fun, silly stuff like that. So Parks and Parks and Recollection would be my recommendation. That is such a cool name for a podcast. <laughs> right? 
<laughs> it's, a, it's amazing that you can make a podcast and just rewatch a whole lot of different shows. And I love the way that they do that now, especially for old shows that are sort of coming into a new era, coming into a whole new social experience. Yes. <laughs> Now, do you have a person that you look up to? Um, I would say that a role model or inspiration for me was um, the late Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Um, she was just such a, before she was even a Supreme Court Justice and she had such a big influence in the American court system and, and law, she actually did a lot in the 70s to advance women's rights women's, um, you know, women actually couldn't get their own mortgages in the United States in the 70s until um, she got involved in the lawsuit. And she was a major driver of, of changing that. And she was just always such a steadying presence. Um, she had a lot of support from her partner, which I always thought was such a great thing. You know, at the time, it was really hard to be a strong career woman. And having that support, I think, is was really helpful. And I actually have a sticker on my water bottle with a quote from her that says, never underestimate the power of a girl with a book. And that for me was kind of, you know, my mom was reading me books before I was even born when I was when she was still pregnant with me. So books have been how I kind of shaped my life. And that was just very inspirational. And, and I miss her a great deal. She was a big, a big influence and a really strong impact in the United States. Yeah, I think I've gotten her as a role model for a few a few times on the show. And I can definitely see why. The more and more I'm hearing about her, because in Australia, I don't really hear much about a lot of the political side to it and a lot of the law side to it. So it's amazing to sort of see um, like a third person view on how important this person is. So it's it's so great to see. Yeah. Wait, when she passed away, my husband had to sit me down. I didn't know it yet. And he sat me down and told me and I was like weeping. <laughs> but he knew that this was like such an amazing person in my like life that he had to, you know, break it to me really gently. And it was it was just devastating. So, yes, she was a very big influence on myself and a lot of women in America, honestly. Well, that's that's so great to hear that we have those big social influences. <laughs> now, during your academic pursuit, what's been one course that has really stuck out to you? So when I was an undergraduate, um, I was actually really interested in how media and communication worked and like television shows, magazines, et cetera. But then when I started my graduate program and I, I did that at the same institution where I'm an undergraduate at the University of Delaware, um, I had to I was required to take a class in interpersonal communication. And that class changed my entire life because it made me see the value of all the things that we're going to be talking about today, all the other things that I research, um, how important just these one-to-one -one interactions, these relationships that we have in our lives that are so important to us, but sometimes we feel so lost about how to manage them. That class just really changed my entire life. It was taught by my thesis advisor who has become a really close person in my life. And so it just really sh shifted the direction of my trajectory as a, as a person and as a in terms of my career and my profession. Well, that's, it's so, it's so great. I always love asking that question because it's so interesting to sort of hear one course that they still remember, even after years of studying, there's that one course that has really changed your whole view. It's an amazing experience, honestly. And I still use information from that class today. I still go through my notes and the readings and it really has had a long lasting impact. Oh, that's that's so great. Now, going into a little bit more about 
our topic today. We know that everyone has a very different understanding as to what family is and who who is family, who is not family, who is family or friends. So what do you think the whole idea of the term family is to you? Family to me, and I, I do equate this in some level with, with caregiving, is anyone that you are bound by ties with. And those ties could be marriage, blood, legal, like foster adoption, et cetera. But it can also be by choice and by commitment. And so there are, you know, a number of different places in the world, even here, where not every single, you know, gay marriage or whatever is not, you know, legal, but that is still a commitment that would count those individuals count themselves as a family and they should be counted as a family. So I think there does definitely has to be some level of choice, but it's also involuntary in a way, right? So you're born to parents and those parents are technically by law your family. Um, you might not choose to have a close relationship with them. I think family and relationship are kind of the difference there. Family can be technical and relationship is really personal and what you choose it choose to be and how you choose to approach it. Family also can vary in terms of time. So it can be a long lasting relationship. You have the whole entire course of your life, like the sibling. It can be very short. It can be a new relationship. It could be a, mar- a relationship you marry into. And there can be a really great span of distance. So it could be somebody that's sitting right next to you. It can be somebody that's thousands of miles away. But really, it's it's kind of a personal thing that everybody kind of has their own perspective about. Of course, the legal definition is is much more narrow. But I take a wider view. <laughs> yeah. No, I think when you say when you talk about the like the connection that's sort of been made between person to person, I really love the idea that it's more about the relationship between each person rather than family. I do agree that family is very much biological in the sense that um, you are born into a family, but it doesn't make, it also in the weird way, it doesn't make a family. Yes, absolutely. You have to, it doesn't force it, right? You don't want to have to force it. I think now, especially, you know, as we're evolving as individuals in the world, we do have more of a sense of who should be in our family and who shouldn't. And we are able to make better choices about what relationships we have with our family members. And I think that's a really good thing as progress. Do you think that the there's still that same importance of the term family as we did sort of view it, say, five, ten years ago? Oh, boy. Um. Well, with, with COVID, it has really, I think we really and realized how important family is. Many people were spending a lot of time with family members during, you know, we had a lot of lockdown here in in the United States and I know Australia did as well. Um, And so you're spending a lot of time with those people. And I think it really helped to instill the importance of those relationships. Sometimes it was telling in that, you know, people realized that those individuals maybe should be in their family, right? You, you, You spend so much time with that person. You're able to devote a lot more effort into it. And then you kind of decide, wow, what was I what was I doing? But I do think that people are more attuned to family right now. I think that they realize how important it is, especially at an individual level. Um, I don't know how we would view it in America in terms of, you know, government focus and, you know, social structure and stuff like that. But I think people individually now after the pandemic have sort of woken up and said, oh, my gosh, these are the things that are important to me. And family is definitely one of those. Mm -hmm. 
Now, talking about family caregiving, and we hear that, we're going to hear that term quite a lot in today's episode. So I would love to define it a little bit more as to what what your definition of what a family caregiving situation is. A family caregiving situation is any situation where an individual is providing some sort of informal care to a family member or friend, but most of the time family member, but a close relational partner. And that care is usually, you know, initiated because of a health condition, an illness or a disability that's occurred. So informal means that you're not really trained, you're not really paid, you're kind of a lot of times thrown into this situation without a lot of preparation. And I do want to say I am going to be talking a lot from the American perspective tonight because unfortunately, a lot of my research is focused on kind of the Western perspective. A lot of other cultures are a lot more forgiving and, and you know, helpful with family caregiving than ours is. Ours is a little bit more restricted. Um, we don't have a lot of legal you know, assistance with family caregiving. But it's it's a personal experience that you take on because you care about another person and you want to help them with their health situation. Mm -hmm. And how important is the quality of that care? Quality of care is really essential. It's basically how we define it um, in, in my research is essentially how you feel you are doing, what kind of job you are doing. Are you good at it? Um, job performance is kind of another way to think about it. If, if you're doing something, you want to do it well. And that's what quality of care really kind of tries to get at. And I think if you're if you're trying to be a good caregiver, you're trying to provide that good quality of care. But it's difficult. There's all sorts of challenges that can arise from that. Mm -hmm. So in terms of the communication pattern, and I'm going to ask this question because I I did sort of mention what a communication style is earlier on the show. But what exactly is a communication pattern? There's lots of different ways to define it, but I'm going to focus in on something called family communication patterns. And so these are really things that happen in your family of origin. So most of the time, you're sort of more immediate family, your parents, your siblings, your, you know, later on your marital partner or your partner where you start to grow your own family as well. But essentially, they come from an idea that communication, and we like to center communication and everything in, in our discipline, um, communication really helps family members develop a shared worldview. So by communicating, everyone can kind of understand how to approach the world, view the world, engage with the world, change the world even. And that idea has really focused in on two distinct forms of communication patterns. The first one is called conversation orientation. And it's really how your family is very willing to be open about different topics have different communication styles, be open to debate, open to particular viewpoints that maybe are deviant or different from the, the traditional viewpoints. Willingness to listen to others, be open. Um, it's a very positive trait. It's a very positive orientation that family members can have. And so if you have high conversation orientation, you're typically more open, more willing to talk about different things. The second one is called conformity orientation. And that one is more focused on how homogenous or united a family is. Do the family members, you know, sort of have different opinions? And if those opinions are present, is it okay to talk about them? Or does everyone need to be sort of on the same page, doing the same thing, having the same perspectives? 
Um, conformity orientation can be positive or negative. It could be seen as, you know, you can't deviate. You have to be this way in the family or you might, you know, run into trouble, have conflicts, etc. Or it could be that you all are united. You all are on the same page. You all do share the same perspective. And you've done that through your communication. So it can be positive in that way. Conversation and conformity orientation actually tend to be negatively related. So if you have a high conversation orientation in your family, if you're listening to this and you're thinking, oh, that's what my family is. We're high conversation orientation. It's likely that you're probably going to have lower conformity orientation that kind of work in opposition to one another most of the time, not always, but most of the time. Conversation orientation um, really helps to contribute to good health. It's healthy for the family. It's healthy for individuals in terms of their physical and even mental well-being. Conformity orientation is a, is a tiny bit little, tiny bit more negative. Um, I would say that if you have a high conformity orientation family, you might not be willing to share. You might feel a little bit sort of restricted in your communication and that might have some negative health impact. <clears throat> so there's a lot of different ways that, I mean, you hear about the normal way that people communicate and you think that that's a normal way of communicating but sometimes it might be a bit more impactful than you might realize yes the thing i love about communication and what i love about teaching communication or researching communication and talking about communication is that it's something we do every day it's something we're doing all the time especially when we're in the presence of other people it's so important to us. It really fuels our relationships. It fuels our professional lives. It fuels who we are as, as people. It helps to really form and shape our identities. But we don't think about it a lot. And we think that we're good. We all think we're good communicators. But there's probably some aspect of our communication that could be improved or at least clarified. Um, at least shine a light on some things that maybe you didn't even think about when you were communicating and maybe make you a little bit more aware of it. And that could be on its own just helpful. Mm-hmm. And what are some of the patterns that might influence the quality of care within a family? Um, so basically what we found in the research that we've done is that if you have high conversation orientation in your family, and not just about caregiving, about all the different topics that you could discuss in your family, all the different ways that you communicate, all the things you communicate about, that tends to contribute to better quality of care. And the explanation for that is that you're probably more willing. So I'm, say I'm the caregiver, I'm probably more willing to, to ask the care recipient questions and clarify things and want to have sort of more of a dialogue about how that caregiving journey is going to go. Other family members who are involved and, and inevitably you're not the sole caregiver. You, you usually have other family members involved or at least, you know, part time helping out or at least contributing in some way um, that can really help in terms of being able to improve that quality of care because you're more willing to maybe seek their input, have conversations with them about the caregiving that's going on. And really that can also, and we'll talk about this, I'm sure in a moment, contribute to better social support for everyone involved as well. For conformity mm-hmm. orientation, it actually is not related to quality of care, which we found to be really interesting. Um, it could be because when we measured conformity orientation, we actually measured just more of the negative impact of it that you were sort of being asked to play along, go with the flow, do what you're supposed to do, not ask any questions. And that can obviously, you know, we we thought logically it might inhibit the quality of care. It's actually not related. And I think that that might have been because we didn't really bring in the idea of 
possible benefits of conformity, which is being united, everyone being on the same page, everyone knowing their roles and their duties in that particular situation. So that was one of the kind of surprising things that we found in the research. But conversation orientation, the higher it is, the more it contributes to the quality of care in the caregiving situation. Mm -hmm. And how much of the communication style that each person has, how much of it is personality based and how much of it is sort of you learn it on the go or you learn it within your family? That's a great question. Um, I really (laughs) I wish I could provide you with a percentage of which is which. Um, I think that personality has an impact, but I don't think a personality is set in stone, right? You're not born with this particular personality. I think that there's ways that the environment, your kind of nature versus nurture. I think that the nurturing can really impact who you are as a person too. Maybe if you um, are an anxious person, right? Your family can make you feel like that's okay or that's, that's the way they are as well. And so it makes you a little bit more comfortable with that personality trait. So I think that the personality part of it is important. But I think really how we engage with the world through communication has a a massively big impact on how we are as people and and that communication. And then the communication, you know, how we are as people influences how we communicate. And it becomes sort of this really interesting sort of circular relationship. Mm -hmm. And we talked about some of the the lack of the communication. So when it comes to the lack of communication, how does that impact the quality of care within the family? Avoidance of communication is a really big issue in the caregiving situation. Um, So as I said, a lot of times people aren't prepared to caregive. A lot of times there's an emergency or an illness is diagnosed and people are really caught off guard about the fact that now that they have to take on this massively huge role. um, Research in the United States has found that Caregivers typically provide about 24 hours of care a week. That is one day a week devoted entirely to providing care for someone. And it's just a massive undertaking. And so being able to really, you know, understand how communication is a part of that is is really, really important because the avoidance really starts to creep in when people become sort of overwhelmed, right? And caregiving is an extremely overwhelming experience. A lot of people don't feel as if they had choice in being a caregiver. It was sort of something that was thrust upon them. A lot of people feel very stressed as caregivers. A lot of people feel that they don't have resources. And a lot of times when that happens, especially when family communication patterns have already established this avoidance and and not talking to one another and maybe assuming what everybody knows and not engaging, then that's going to really impact how the caregiving goes. And it just makes it worse. So siblings, for example, siblings who are adult siblings, they have a lot of conflict avoidance about taking care of their parents. They really feel uncomfortable talking about it. It's a very big role shift, right? Now they're kind of becoming more of the parental caretake, you know, caretakers in that relationship. It's very uncomfortable. And it's also very uncomfortable for the siblings to figure out who's doing what, how. And all of that is imbued by, you know, previous family relationships, family challenges, family conflict. So avoidance, I would say, is a really big issue in terms of caregiving. I really wish that people would talk about it more. I wish that people would feel more comfortable talking about it. But I also understand that it's such a sensitive, delicate topic and something that's so emotional to people. You know, it's your family member, someone you care about. You're putting in all this time and effort to help them. And it might not be helping. It might just be sort of helping them to maintain the you know decreased quality of life that they have. 
And it's really upsetting. So there's so many different elements of it. And I think a lot of people respond to that by sort of putting their head in the sand and trying to sort of push through it and figure it out on their own and not really talk about it with one another. And and I would I would caution against that unless it's something, you know, if you have a really firm, established avoidance pattern in your family, I would say, you know, don't all of a sudden say, OK, we're going to talk about everything. That's not going to be really the, the most positive way to sort of flip the script. But even just baby steps of started trying to talk about it a little bit more, bringing it up, scheduling times to talk about the situation, I think can be really beneficial sort of across the board. It's for me, there's so much when it comes to like you were mentioning about a child taking care of like children taking care of a parent. And we don't see that often enough for us to really like on an everyday scale, for example, I grew up with a couple of my friends who had to leave school at a young age in order to take care of their sibling or had to not go to university to take care of their sibling because they were the only other person that was available to be able to take care of them on a 24-hour basis, on a full-on, full-time basis. And we don't really see that often enough to make it to normalize the amount of support that they should be getting. Absolutely. Um, Caregiving is not really depicted in, at least in American culture, right? There's not a television show that's like, hey, let's talk about caregiving. Let's see what this caregiving situation is. It's usually maybe like a side, you know, script or side story for a particular show. If there's families, somebody usually comes down with an illness, but that's usually temporary and it's taken care of really quickly and everyone's really smiling and happy and it seems like it's a fine situation for everybody. And it's got a really good, you know, happy ending at the end. In real life, that's not the way it is at all. And those examples that you provided are very real. They happen very often. Um, In America, people are getting sicker, (laughs) younger, right? They're being diagnosed with more chronic diseases. And those need to be cared for. Somebody usually needs to assist you, even if it's a mild chronic disease. You're probably going to need help with appointments and organizing things. And maybe occasionally if you're having problems, you need somebody to bring you food or something like that. You need that person in your life. And it's not really being talked about or sort of acknowledged that much. And that is a real tragedy because, as you're saying, we don't get to really see the full range of all the different situations where caregiving could occur or the full range of situations of caregiving, positive, neutral, negative, what have you. So it is it is a challenge because you don't really see it depicted in society. Mm. And especially when it comes to the lack of support that goes on for a lot of different areas like we have some we have an acknowledgement of support when it comes to people taking care of their elderly parents or grandparents we have that sort of depiction but when talking about other areas such as the child who's not able to um move on with their life or sort of build their life because they're still having to take care of other family members or being the parent to other family members there, we don't have that support system in place, a lot of a lot more support than we should. So how important is that support for the different types of caregivers that sort of come around? Social support in general is one of the primary reasons why we communicate. Social support is basically assisting someone with your thoughts, is your communication, your actions, doing or helping them in some way. It's vital. We we do it all the time. Sometimes we don't do it that well. Sometimes we want to do it better or we don't know how to do it. 
but it has so many positive health outcomes. It really improves your well-being. It really improves, you know, your outlook on life. It really makes you feel as if you belong. And all of those things in general are very important in terms of social support. Fortunately, we, we don't really know how to do it very well in a lot of different circumstances. And in caregiving, it becomes even more vital. There's different types of social support that are particularly important for caregiving. Um, for example, emotional. So just checking in with somebody and seeing how they're doing and th- telling them that you're thinking about them or, you know, do if you ever want to talk, let me know. There's informational support. So doing research about a new illness that maybe a family member was diagnosed with and having all the sort of information that you need to be able to care for them. Instructions from healthcare providers, insurance information, prescription schedules, that sort of thing. And then there's tangible support, just showing up with dinner, being able to, you know, help have someone help you clean the house, walk your dog, do something like that. Those are all really vital elements of the caregiving situation that I think a lot of people who are watching the caregiver and the care recipient kind of interact probably want to help more with. They want to be more of that support system for both the caregiver and the care recipient, but they might not know how. So it's really, really vital. Um, Social support also helps caregivers have less burden, less feelings that they are really overwhelmed and suffering as a result of being a caregiver. And it also contributes to caregiver well-being. It makes them just feel better which a, a, a caregiver that feels okay is a better caregiver. Unfortunately, caregivers oftentimes have themselves compromised health because of the extra burden of being a caregiver on top of everything else. So social support is absolutely vital. In terms of the quality of care, if you are providing, if you have a social support around you, if you feel as if your family members are helping you out, they're there for you, they're willing to support you as a caregiver, you're going to actually be a better caregiver yourself. You're going to perform better as a caregiver. So that alone should be enough of a motivation for sort of caregivers to seek out support or family members who are sort of observing the caregiving situation from afar to say, hey, what can I do? Can I check in with you? Can I come for a week and take care of the family member while you take a break? Those sorts of small things make a big difference in terms of the caregiver, their health, the care recipient's health and the entire caregiving situation. Mm -hmm. And how does communication really fit in within the family because it's like you said earlier it's hard to communicate how you feel and people don't do it that well because we're stuck with the idea that this is our responsibility this is what we have to be able to do Um, and also you don't want to feel like you're suddenly becoming a burden on other people as well so how would you communicate um, within the family the fact that you need that, that you need that support or that you want that support As a caregiver, that's not done nearly enough. People feel as if they have to take on their own responsibilities. They have to stay in their own lanes. They have to fulfill the roles that they feel as if they have. And that would be one of the things that I would suggest doing. If you're a caregiver, you should never feel uncomfortable reaching out to other people who love you to help. Most of the times they would be thrilled to help. Um, When we think about somebody, if you hear about somebody whose family member has a health crisis, Sometimes you feel really bad and a a way to feel bad to alleviate that bad feeling is to support them, is to help them out. Um, Even, you know, sending dinner one night or something like that can be enough to make you feel better. So as the caregiver, you should never be ashamed to ask for help. Um, You're probably going to be pleasantly surprised by what you hear back, that that the support is there for you, that you're that you're willing to, you know, that they're willing to help you and that they love and care about you. And if 
it's not if it is what you expected that they that they turn you down and they're not there for you. Well, it doesn't really change the position you're in, right? You're still not really getting a lot of help or care or assistance. And now you have a little bit more clarity about that relationship. So I would say that, you know, support from all different angles. I think that family members should be very attuned to whether or not if they have a caregiver in their family, how that caregiver is doing and try to be you know, supportive of them and, and helpful for them and reaching out to them, too, because the caregiver is often a little too overwhelmed to ask for help. But if a family member asks and says, here's these specific things I want to do to help you, that can be really, really, you know, healthy for everybody. And it's something that the caregiver should accept. Don't feel like, oh, I shouldn't <clears throat> let them do that. They have so much going on. Everybody has stuff going on. And if they're offering, that means that they do want to help and, and you can give them some tangible ways to assist you. Mm -hmm. And we've spoken about this a little bit earlier when it comes to some of the challenges that can sort of come up when going through, like, especially with maintaining a healthy communication. But what other challenges that we can just sort of list out in one in one conversation as to how that might arise when maintaining a healthy communication with providing family care? So I would say the first one is being stuck in those communication patterns, right? Our families, we have such an established set of patterns with them that it's really hard to break out of that, right? So if you have, if you're a child and you have a parent and that parent was always, you know, loving, but sort of distant, very busy, but, you know, let you do, you know, had some structure for you, but you didn't really have a super close relationship, you probably are going to approach caring for them in that very same way. And that's going to not, it's going to, you know, resist breaking that pattern and it's probably going to compromise the care that is being received. But the other thing that I would say is the roles that people have. People get very stuck in those roles. They they don't want to deviate from, you know, sometimes siblings have like the oldest sibling is the responsible one and the middle sibling is kind of, you know, stuck in the middle of everything. It doesn't really have a clear direction. And then the youngest sibling is, you know, more of the social one that gets a little bit more spoiled. And those sibling roles can really establish and, and be really hard to deviate from and change. So breaking out of those roles, I think, is a, is a challenge. I think generally, you know, caregiving is so challenging because the social structure that most countries have for caregiving, especially informal caregiving, it just really doesn't exist. So there's not a lot of resources even for a caregiver or a family that's trying to provide care for someone um, they don't know where to look. There's not a lot of social services. Um, in America, we don't have paid leave for caregiving that's required by law. There is a small amount of unpaid leave that a lot of private organizations are required to, to follow. But, you know, a lot of people get driven into early retirement or, as you were saying, they aren't able to pursue things that they want to pursue, like a university degree or a job or moving far away. I think there's just so many restrictions that are even socially placed that make caregiving that more, much more challenging. I could go on forever about the challenges, and but those are probably to... the main ones. <laughs> no, I think there's there's so many there, and I think there's there's a few that really stuck out to me when it comes to the post care, the post caregiving that is no longer really needed, and the role that sort of still takes place because. Um, like I said, the friend of mine earlier who after the dot, the sister got better, the sibling got better, they 
still didn't know how to sort of move forward and move on and build on from that. So what are some ways that they can really just sort of push through and say, okay, this is no longer needed. I'm no longer needed to be the sibling, the sibling that takes care of everything, the super, super parent that sort of comes along and takes care of it. What's something that they can do to sort of alleviate that level of stress that they've always felt that they've had to have? I think if you're in a situation where you no longer have to care for somebody because they were because they've recovered, then then that's a joyful situation, right? You have helped a person, you know, regain their health. And that's an amazing thing to, that's an accomplishment. And so I think people sometimes feel a little lost and maybe a little guilty about how, you know, weird they feel when a caregiving situation has successfully resolved. Um, I'll talk about when caregiver, you know, ends in death in a second, but you, you should feel proud of, the things that you've done as a caregiver, it provides you with a, a lot of skills, a lot of organizational skills, a lot of support skills that you can then, you know, transition out into what you want to do next. But it is a hard thing to move out of that role for sure. When caregiving results in death um, and that or the caregiving ends in death, like the person naturally dece- is deceased from the situation. I've seen a lot of caregivers actually experience a weird sense of relief because they are released from that role. And I think that that relief makes them feel very guilty. But if you know that you've done all you can for that person and that was, you know, the the illness was going to, you know, play out that way, then you should just, again, feel very proud, feel very confident about how much you've helped someone else, how much you've shown that person that you care and that hopefully you've done all that you can. And Talking about strategies, what are some of the strategies that family members can sort of employ into their everyday life to improve that communication and sort of strengthen that social support that they can get within the family? Yes. Um, I would say the first thing is to know your communication patterns in your family. So a lot of people might not have heard of those ideas about communication, family communication patterns before, but say to think about what your family communication patterns are and sort of identify them because there are strengths and weaknesses for each, right? So how would you be able to sort of harness the positives and the opportunities that being in a high conversation orientation family presents to you? There's lots of positives there. What can you do with that? So knowing your communication patterns in your family, you don't have to necessarily change them. They're not necessarily good or bad. They're just what exists and they're very well established. So they're very difficult to change. But identifying them can let you know sort of what the next course of action is. The second thing I would say is supporting. We talked about how difficult it is sometimes to reach out and support someone else and really let them know that you care for them, that you need to help them, that you want to help them, and that this is sort of a a family situation, not just a caregiver care recipient situation. So reaching out with support, being very specific about that support, too, I think is really important. A lot of times people say, let me know if I can help. Let me know if I can do anything for you. And very rarely does someone come back and say, you know, I have these three things that would be really wonderful that you could do in response to that really vague sort of request or offer. So thinking of ways ahead of time to offer specific forms of support. So like I was talking about with the meals, right? 
in my academic department at my university, we've had a couple of situations where people have gotten sick or family members of the of my colleagues have gotten sick. And we always mobilize as a, a faculty to try to help that individual and that family out. Uh, we've done meal trains before where we've just provided meals, provided gift certificates for meal delivery services. We've been, you know, really engaged with the family in terms of helping care for their kids while they were sick or something like that. So really mobilizing and having specific ideas about what that care can look like in a way that best supports the caregiver, I think is really important. And then obviously that will help the care recipient as well. The other thing, and this is tied to what I was just talking about, is acknowledging. A lot of people don't really want to bring up that a family member is sick or is having trouble or is suffering. We don't like to talk about the negative stuff. Um, So if you know someone whose partner has cancer, you might sort of shy away from talking to them about it because you're like, oh my gosh, they have so much on their plate, so much going on. I don't want to bother them. I don't want to burden them. I actually do the opposite. I've made a point if I know someone is sick or I have a family member that's sick, I make sure that I reach out, ask specifically about that person. And then if there's a way to offer some sort of tangible support, I can. But even just that acknowledgement that I'm thinking about you, I know things are rough right now. I want to be there for you. You know, what can we do? Here's some specific ideas, but just the simple act of acknowledgement, at least in American culture, we don't like to talk about things that are really emotional, right? It's very difficult for us and it makes us a little bit sort of standoffish and uncomfortable. But reaching out and just pushing through and making sure that you acknowledge at least the situation, I think can go a long way in terms of strategies. No, I I definitely agree with that last one. I think that's such a big thing and something that we really neglect as a, I think as a society as a whole, we really, we don't like being uncomfortable. And I've spoken about this. I could go on and on about the idea of not being uncomfortable and not wanting to make the other person feel uncomfortable. But we use it as a source of gossip as well when someone's sick or if someone has COVID or like in previous times when someone has gotten sick. I think I've heard about it from other people so many times rather than actually heard it from that person that gotten sick. So there's that whole social um, expectation that we just don't talk about it, but we can gossip about it to other people. Absolutely. And, you know, whenever somebody says to you, how are you doing? You always say fine, right? You don't say well, here are the four things that I really challenge with right now. Here's why things are really difficult. I mean, even during the pandemic, we all were sort of pushing, pushing a, putting a good face forward, right? We were looking good on our Zooms. We were working harder than ever. We were making sure our kids were still in school, but everybody was really suffering and nobody was really talking about it. The depression levels went up. The anxiety levels went up. We were all struggling so much. And I think few of us were really willing to, you know, show up on a Zoom looking really tired, looking really upset or not working at all because you know what, it, there's a pandemic going on. So just even acknowledging that that things are tough and even being able to bring up those topics with someone or if you're having the, the, the challenges, bringing it up with someone else that you care about, it can be so instrumental and so helpful. Well, that's, that's so, it's so great to sort of list out these strategies and thank you for asking all those questions, answering all those questions. Um, Now we're going to look into the practices that we can put into place and how it can sort of motivate us in terms of the communication patterns in caregiving. Now, could you share some practical experiences or some habits that have proven to make a significant positive impact when improving communication patterns in caregiving? 
I, I can't offer. So I'm not a caregiver right now. The reason I started doing caregiving research is because um, about a, a decade, 15 years ago, um, my aunt was diagnosed with early onset Alzheimer's and she passed away a few years later. But seeing I was living across the country at the time, my mother was living close to my aunt and my uncle. My cousin was there, too. But they were really struggling. And I couldn't believe how tough of a time it was for my my family to be helping this person with this really degenerative, terrible disease that was just awful for all around for everyone. They just really struggled. And I thought, oh, my gosh, there has to be a better way. There has to be research that helps us understand this better so we can help caregivers out. So that's the perspective I'm coming from. If I was doing a workshop or if I was in that family situation right now, um, I would offer a couple of suggestions. First, I'm going to keep driving this point home. Seek one another out. Be, Be uncomfortable, like you were saying. Make sure, I would even say like set aside a time, maybe weekly or monthly to talk about the caregiving situation. And then that way everybody can kind of think about it ahead of time, have a clear head, bring ideas to the table, have an agenda even. But it's a job and jobs need to be discussed. They need to be reviewed. They need to be improved upon. You know, your performance needs to be, you know, sort of evaluated the idea of of quality of care. And that can only really be done through sort of being able to talk about it and be uncomfortable. So that would be the first thing I would say. The second thing I would say is try to figure out what your role in the caregiving situation is. So in the past, I've actually equated the caregiving situation to being on a sports team. Um, there's oftentimes someone who is the, the, the lead, right? The captain of the team, the main caregiver who is sort of driving the bus, making sure that everyone's doing what they're supposed to be doing and, you know, serving as sort of the main point of contact for everything. So there's the captain. There's people who are, you know, maybe have different levels of experience, different levels of involvement. So starters versus bench players, right? So where do you fall in that if your family has a caregiving situation? Are you there more actively involved or are you more in the background? And uh, being one or the other isn't necessarily bad. It's just kind of figuring out what role you have on the team. The final thing is thinking about what position you would be in, right? So teams have positions like second baseman, guard, you know, tackle, those sorts of things. What strengths do you bring to the table as an individual in terms of that caregiving situation? So if you have somebody in your family who's a financial advisor, their strength, their their position in that situation might be to help with the finances and help with, you know, figuring out the insurance and all the different elements of the financial monetary aspects of the situation. And that might be their strength and how they can best contribute. So really sort of breaking it down in almost a clinical way in terms of thinking about who can do this, who can do that. What would this team look like if we were going to try to win and have the most success, i.e. provide the most quality care that that you can possibly do? The last thing I would say is when your family caregiving patterns are, they're very established. You're never going to change them entirely. You're never going to make them be ideally exactly what you want them to be, but you can work at the margins, right? So you can improve things a little bit here, improve things a little bit there. Um, I do research on interpersonal conflict. And one of the interesting things that we found in that research area is that you don't necessarily have to be nicer. You just have to be less mean. (laughs) And so you don't have to use positive communication all the time. But maybe if you feel like you're going to make a negative remark, catch yourself and not do that. And that actually will help. You know, it's not going to 
change the nature of the relationship entirely, but just doing what you can in the moment and thinking about how you communicate and those specific little things that you can do. Negative communication is powerful. Um, When you have one negative interaction with somebody, especially a close relational partner, you actually need to have five positive interactions to make up for or sort of erase that one negative interaction. And that's always been, it's called the five to one ratio. And that's always been a really fascinating piece of information for me. So negative communication can have such a big impact. So even just trying to reduce it and you don't have to eliminate it and you don't have to replace it with positivity and nice niceness and constructive information all the time, but just pulling back a little bit on the negativity, which is there's a lot of negativity oftentimes in caregiving situations, a lot of frustrations, a lot of stress, a lot of, you know, compromised health. And that can, you know, fuel tempers and fuel conflict and fuel avoidance. But just sort of trying to overcome a little bit of negativity, I, it, it sounds so weird, but I think it can really go a long way sometimes. And I, I love the second one where it comes with just being honest and being uncomfortable and really talking about um, really just discussing and really making that time, making the agenda. Because I think we forget the, I think they're talking about the the players on the team. And I think that's such a great analogy for what we're talking about, Um, especially when it comes with the, uh, it doesn't matter what field, what player you're holding and what player you're playing. It just matters that the fact that we have to acknowledge the fact that that exists and being honest with the fact that that is how it goes. So one person can take the lead, but they have to admit that they are taking, they are the one taking the lead. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And, and the idea, I mean, you could even, to, to further the metaphor, you could even say that it's having those set aside times is really establishing your game plan, right? And, and having you know, just everyone rushing in and trying to figure out the ways to do it when you're playing a game as a team, that's never going to work, right? You have to at least talk about and practice and think about ways that you can sort of think ahead of schedule and, and, you know, anticipate. And so I think that idea of, you know, setting aside that time can be really, really valuable. It's uncomfortable to set it up at first, but I think once you have it established, it can be really, really helpful for everyone involved. And I mean, we spoke about some of the challenges of just being uncomfortable, but what, some, what are some of the other challenges that can take place when we're using any of those three practices that you recommend? Well, a lot of times it's deviating from what you are supposed to be in your family. So going back to the ideas of roles, maybe you're the captain in this caregiving situation, but usually you've been more of a bench player. Maybe because you are proximate to your care recipient, it got sort of pushed on you and you're willing to take that on, but it might be a very big difference from what you normally are. Maybe you're sort of the sibling who stays out of things, doesn't really cause trouble, doesn't really cause strife in the family. And now you're all of a sudden asking for this, asking for that, coordinating things. And a lot of times other family members might react sort of according to their roles and be resistant and be, you know, problematic and so forth. So I think that can definitely be a challenge. And we haven't really talked a lot about the care recipient. Sometimes the care recipient themselves they might not be grateful for the help all the time, right? A lot of times when there's, you know, dementia or cognitive decline, not only do they not, you know, recognize your efforts as a caregiver, they are actively kind of working against you or 
there's natural aggression that goes along as Alzheimer's develops, right? I've even seen ads in America that have talked about, you know, if your if your family member is starting to be aggressive when they have Alzheimer's, it's not them, it's the disease. And it's kind of sort of that sort of thing to think about too, you know, is the care, what's the care recipient, you know, knowing that sometimes you might be providing the care and you're not going to be getting the recognition from the care recipient. I think it's a hard lesson to think about. But again, if you're in a team situation, your team should be talking about that, understanding that, and maybe you can have other sources of support and sort of recognition from other members of the family. I think especially if you're, you don't have a good relationship with the care recipient to begin with, that can really be damaging to how you would be able to take that role on and how they would allow you to take that role on. Absolutely. And it's a lot of times in, in terms of, you know, who caregivers are, a lot of times it's women. A lot of times it's women in their 40s to 60s. So they're at a time in their lives when they are going through a lot of changes as well. Um, they might be a member of the sandwich generation, which the sandwich generation is people who are middle-aged, who are raising children and also taking care of a family member, usually a parent. So they're sandwiched in between these two responsibilities and they're oftentimes pulled in these two different directions. And it's very overwhelming to not only care for your children, but also take care of a parent. So that can de definitely be a challenge. There's also a phenomenon called gray divorce where older individuals, older partners maybe realize later in life that they should not be together, maybe because of their empty nesters. And once they realize all their children have moved out, they don't really have anything to talk about. So there's been an increase in older adults divorcing. That removes a really essential part of the caregiving team, right? If you have a spouse that's living with the care recipient, they're going to be the one that's taking on the care. But if that's removed because there's been a divorce or a dissolution of the relationship, you have an additional challenge now of figuring out who that person is going to be that cares for the individual. But a lot of times it's so unwilling. There's different inequitable, you know, the, the person that's providing the care is providing so much time, so much money, so much resource so much effort and then other people who maybe should be contributing more aren't and then resentment can really come from that too. But there's so many different parts of it that make it much more challenging in terms of the communication. Mm. Yeah, I think the the resentment is a big one that I, I probably relate to a lot when it comes to the caregiving side to it and especially having one, one of the siblings being the one that takes care of the parent majority of the time, you sort of become resentful all the all the others who are sort of living their life or building up their own life and leaving the other one behind. So I can definitely see that as being one of the biggest one of the biggest challenges that sort of come across when it comes to the communication style that sort of takes place. Absolutely. It's funny because I'm an only child and I, I I've always hated being an only child, but now that I'm older, I'm like, yeah, both my parents they're, they're doing really well. They live independent. They're divorced. They live in independently. They're, they don't have the major health issues. I'm extremely lucky. But there's also that part of me that says, wow, I don't have to coordinate this with a sibling. I get to, when this arises, really be the person that sort of is in charge and is being able to sort of be the captain of the team. I have my spouse to support me. There's other family members, of course. But I don't have to worry about the sibling sort of dynamics, which I think is honestly 
sort of beneficial at this point. So sometimes siblings can be a really big barrier, even though you think, oh, there's more of them. So there's going to be more help. Well, oftentimes there's not. It's really just falls on one person. Um, and that resentment, as you said, can really, really grow and fester. Mm. No, I can I can definitely see that happening. I have one sister and I'm already thinking about how that's going to go and seeing how immature she is and knowing that I'm going to be able to take majority of the roles. Um, but going on to our next section, which is the open mic, um, it gives you a chance to talk about something that you're passionate about. And we have spoken about this before we started recording on what we're going to talk about today. So I'd love to give you the floor for the next minute or so and to be able to at least briefly discuss what um, what your passion is at the moment. Okay. Um, one of the most terrible elements of the pandemic has been the development of long COVID, which is when you're long, when your COVID symptoms after you've been diagnosed or you've had the, the virus continue for three months or more. It can be sort of mild, right? You might feel fatigued for a few months or it can be really extreme where you are bedridden and your entire life has changed. Long COVID can ease over time or it can't, right? We, we saw a lot of it when the pandemic was first happening with the different variants. It is decreasing a little bit now, but it's very hidden. We're not really hearing about it. We're not really talking about it. We're not really acknowledging that there are tens of millions of people, at least in America, who are going to be a challenge for the healthcare system and society for a while because they have to manage this chronic illness. The caregivers are specifically not being acknowledged in this situation. So there are whole millions of people who are thrown into being a caregiver because of long COVID. And so that's one of the things that I'm researching now. I think it's really important to understand the long COVID caregivers' perspectives, how they're communicating, what's happening with their relationships. I just think that there's so much there. There's so much stigma related to COVID, unfortunately. There's still so much uncertainty about long COVID in particular. There's not a lot of research on it. There's a lot of conflicting. Sometimes doctors say you're supposed to exercise more, but really that makes you even worse. There's so much conflicting even medical evidence that being a long COVID caregiver, I think, is one more challenge on top of everything else that caregivers have to take on. And I'm really interested in learning more about that. I'm really excited about that new area of research I'm taking on. No, I think we were discussing this prior to recording as well. I think long COVID is something that, like you said, we don't have any information on. We barely even hear about any news of it on any platform right now. And I think the caregivers, because I remember when I got COVID, it was my mom and my sister who were taking care of me and basically taking care of me through a door. So providing meals and providing all these different things like it's sometimes even entertainment, trying to figure out how I'm going to be able to survive for the next two weeks and just be able to go and not see anyone socially. So there's that expectation that you're just supposed to, you're supposed to stay there, but then who's going to be the one looking after you throughout it? So I think looking into caregivers will be such an interesting point of research in this day and age as well. So I'm excited to see more more um, research for that as well. So yeah, thank you so much for sharing with that. Um, now, if anyone would like to get in contact with you, whether to ask more questions that I have missed regarding the different communication patterns or the social support that sort of comes around, or even long COVID, there's some of the research in that, is there a way that they're able to get in contact with you? 
Yes, I'm so glad you asked that. If you are a long COVID caregiver or if you have long COVID and you want to share your story, I'm just starting to understand more about this research and and what direction it's going to take. So I'm really looking for those long COVID perspectives. So I would encourage everyone to reach out through my email, which is simply my last name, Bevan, B-E-V-A-N, at chapman.edu. So that's my email address for work. You can also Google me, look me up um, in terms of where I am and find my email address really easily in order to share your perspective. So I would really appreciate that. Okay, that's perfect. So I'll have those down in the description below for easy access for all of our audience. So thank you so much, Jennifer, for joining me on the show today. Thank you so much for having me. This was such a great experience to be able to share how important caregiving communication is. (laughs) No, and I'm really glad that we got your perspective on it as well, as well, especially the research behind it. And I think it's something that we definitely need to have more on the show because I think caregiving is such a impactful point that we need to bring to light a whole lot more. So I'm excited to even have that even further and maybe bring you on the show again and talk about it even more. Yeah, when I get the long COVID research figured out, I'll come back and talk to you a little bit more about that. <laughs> yes, perfect. So thank you guys so much for listening. Definitely go out, um, go and check out some of the work that uh, Jennifer has done, maybe some of the research articles that we have seen and that I have looked at um, and get in contact with her if you want to share your perspective on caregiving for long COVID as well. So thank you guys so much for listening. I'll see you all in the next episode. You've been listening to All Together, the Family Science Insights Podcast, produced by the Family Science Labs, a division of LMSL, the Life Management Science Labs. More episodes are available from 10 Life Management Perspectives and can be found by searching LMSL on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and other podcasting apps available on your devices. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider rating our show, sharing it, and subscribing to our channel as it helps other people find it so that we can grow and bring you more quality resources. More of our work can be found on our website at fa.lmsl.net where you can join our movement. I'm Dina Sargent. Thanks for tuning in.